Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, are you being misled? Misled by false teachers. Misled by misunderstanding certain passages. Well, how would you know? One of the problems with being misled, one of the problems with being deceived, is that you don't know you're being deceived. That's one of the big problems. So how can you be led properly and not misled? How can you be undeceived? Well, one thing we've talked about on this program before is sort of my shock that most churches don't teach you how to interpret the Bible. I mean, if if the Bible is God's word, you would think that would be the number one thing they would teach, but very few people, very few churches teach how to interpret the Bible, which is one reason why my friend Alan Parr's YouTube channel has exploded, because he does, does teach people how to interpret the Bible. You know, you, you probably know Alan Parr. If you don't, you need to. He just passed a million subscribers on YouTube. He's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, one of the best seminaries in the country, in the world. He got his degree almost 20 years ago. And right now, he he heads the very popular YouTube channel called The Beat. And The Beat stands for Biblical encouragement and truth and he's got so many great videos up there that will really help you understand the truth about Christianity and he's got a brand new book this new book I love I read the whole book a couple of months ago in order to endorse it and I did and several others endorsed it as well it's called misled seven lies that distort the gospel and how you can discern the truth so it's great to have my friend Alan Parr on. Alan, how are you? I'm doing great, Frank. Uh, glad to be here and looking forward to an exciting conversation. It, I am as well. And I'm also looking forward to having you at CIA. This is going to be the first time you're going to be an instructor with us at the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy in Albuquerque next week. And friends, there, there we may have just a couple of seats left. If you want to be a part of CIA, the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, and learn how to present and how to be better at answering questions... You need to sign up. You need to apply. Go to crossexamine.org. Click on events. Look for CIA. And Alan might be just, well, he's going to be one of the instructors. He might just be your instructor to help you improve your presentation skills. Now, Alan, let's get to this book, Misled. You do such a great job on your YouTube channel explaining the truth of so many biblical concepts uh, what led you to write Misled? Because I think uh, there's so many uh, points in here that you make that I think are just gold, and we'll go through some of them as we go. Why did you write the book? Yeah, so uh, great, great question. I think for me, there was a few reasons that kind of motivated me to write this book. First and foremost, my personal experience. Um, I write about it in the introduction of the book where in college I was involved in a, uh, a church that was uh, teaching false uh, doctrine. And like you said earlier, you know, the worst thing about being deceived is that you don't know that you're being deceived. And that really described me for many, many years until by the Lord's grace, um, uh, he really uh, encouraged me to find enough 
strength to kind of get out of that false church uh, and get free from it. But so many people are not. And so that's one of the things. Uh, The second thing that really motivated me was I have a lot of friends over the years, friends and family members who have been led astray. They've made poor decisions. Their lives have gone in directions that uh, I'm sure they would have preferred them not to go simply because they've been sitting under false teaching. And as you know, uh, wrong uh, interpretation of the Bible oftentimes leads to wrong application as well. And then finally, as you know, as a content creator, uh, we get a lot of comments, we get a lot of emails, we get a lot of uh, messages being sent to our uh, inboxes. And when I look at some of the comments and I look at some of the emails that we get and I see how misled people are with their theology, um, I felt like I needed to write a book that would clear up as many false teachings as possible. So that's really what motivated me to write the book. Now, obviously, friends, we cannot cover the entire book here in this uh, 148-minute interview, but give give us an overview, Alan. What are the seven uh, false beliefs that you go through, the seven ways, seven lies, you call them, that distort the gospel? Just just give us an overview of the seven, and then maybe we'll dive into a couple of them. Sure thing. So uh, chapter one really focuses on not necessarily making the argument that the gift of tongues has ceased. We don't get into that. That's not the purpose of that chapter, but it's really about how the gift of tongues is being misused mm-hmm. in the church, how it's being abused, and how pressure is being put on people to speak in tongues and making them think that if they don't, they're kind of a JV second-class Christian, I call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's really chapter one. And then uh, chapter two really, really goes hard uh, after the false gospel, the false prosperity gospel, uh, word of yeah. faith movement, and really goes in deep and kind of debunks that. Uh, chapter three talks a lot about uh, a specific nuance or aspect of the word of faith movement, which is this idea of positive confession, which is this false teaching that, you, that Christians have the power to speak things into existence. We are little gods. Therefore, if God has creative power with his words, we can create things with our words. We can manifest things, which is a new age philosophy. In chapter four, we talk about prophecy. Once again, not necessarily trying to prove that the gift has ceased or anything like that, but once again, highlighting uh, the misuse of prophecy and uh, really debunking the idea that everybody who says they're a prophet is really not a prophet. And I talk about how to detect what a true prophet is from a false prophet. Chapter five, I'm really excited about. uh, Super practical um, uh, chapter about progressive Christianity and just how rampant that is and how you can spot whether your church is progressive or whether you can spot whether your friends are progressive uh, and the danger of adopting that type of uh, ideology. Chapter six, I talk about uh, what I personally believe. I know some people don't see see it this way, but I personally believe that uh, Christians cannot lose their salvation. And so I build a strong argument uh, to to really um, support the idea that uh, our salvation is secure, eternal security. But then in chapter seven, uh, it's kind of a little bit of the flip side of that where I talk about, uh, yes, it's great that we have uh, security in our salvation, but there should be fruit in the life of the believer uh, that we should pursue a discipleship relationship with Jesus. And so I talk a little bit about how some people can think, oh, I just prayed a prayer when I was seven years old. I'm good. I don't have to do anything for the rest of my life. And okay, that's true. You don't have to do anything to be saved or maintain your salvation. But I believe that works are the fruit of genuine salvation. I build an argument for that in chapter seven. Now, Alan, you also have a a course that you teach on how to interpret the Bible. 
Uh, we have one as well, but I'd love to hear kind of the bones of your course. In fact, I think you talk about the three C's. Can you just give an overview of the three C's? Very important. Yeah, yeah. So that's important because, you know, we need a framework for how we properly interpret the Bible, right? And I think that um, the interesting thing about these things that I talk about in the book is, as you know, Frank, is that uh, most lies, specifically in the church, um, have some sort of truth embedded in them, which is what makes it very difficult for many mm -hmm. Christians to discern, is this true or is this not? And most false teachings are uh, used you use scripture, right? They use scripture to support their uh, teaching. And so the question is not necessarily, are they using scripture, but how are they using scripture? Are they using it properly? So uh, the first C is basic. It's just context, right? Um, if you just take a little bit of time to look at what came before and what came after it, and you really, really study the context of the book, uh, what we call the author's original intent, why did the author write that book? For instance, Philippians 4.13 uh, you can hold that sign up at a football game. You know, hey, my God will supply your, what does it say? Uh, I can do all things to Christ who give right, me strength. Right. Okay, I don't think Paul, when he was in prison, writing to the church of Philippi, was thinking about my Pittsburgh Steelers that are down 35 points in the fourth quarter that we're going to have hope that we can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So like we take these verses and it's like, that's not what it means. It's talking about contentment. So uh, con uh, context, cross-references. There are some verses that are confusing. If you look at what the rest of the Bible has to say, it will help you. And then finally, consultation. Check out a commentary or a Bible dictionary and make sure your interpretation is correct. We'll go a little further after the break on those last two with my friend Alan Parr. His new book, Misled. Trust me, you need to get it. It'll open your eyes and help you quite a bit. We're back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. In the first segment of this program, ladies and gentlemen, I said CIA is next week. No, I didn't mean next week. Next month. It starts uh, at the end of uh, end of July, actually. It's a three-day program at the end of July. I think it's July 27th. Is that right, Jorge? Is it July 28th? One of those days. Anyway, it's the Thursday, July 27th. That's when it starts. If you want to be a part of the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, go to, to uh, crossexamine.org. Click on events. Apply there. Uh, my friend Alan Parr is one of the instructors. Of course, I'll be there. Greg Kokel, Richard Howe, Bobby Conway, Elisa Childers, Natasha Crane. Uh, uh, there'll be uh, Hillary Morgan Ferrer of, uh, of Mama Bear Apologetics, John Ferrer, many others. You'll want to be there as well. Just go to crossexamine.org, click on events. Now, before the break, Alan, you were talking about the three C's of Bible interpretation. You said context, cross-referencing, and then commentaries. But I like what you said. You say something about context. Uh, you say if you take the text out, what happens? Give, give, give us the, uh, <laughs> yes, the insight I mean, there. It's good. You know, you take the text out of context, you get conned every single time, guys. Mm -hmm. All right. And so uh, we don't want anyone getting conned by false teaching. So make sure that every time you hear a pastor using a scripture, you go home and study it like the Berean church in Acts 17, and you make sure that they were using that scripture within the proper historical and grammatical context. So Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through through Christ who strengthens me, is not going to He's not going to help me kick the field goal with with three seconds to go. Is that that's not for that? What are you What are you saying? Come on. He might help you kick the field goal, but I don't think Paul was really had that in mind whenever he was okay. writing that. <laughs> All right. So uh, now you 
just so people know, uh, if they go to your website, alanpar.com, and that's A-L-L-E-N-P-A-R-R.com, what are they going to find there? Because you, you you have courses there, right? Is am, am, I, am I right about that? Yeah. So they'll find a little bit of information about me, my family. Uh, they'll be able to book me to speak at an event if they would like. Uh, they will find uh, different courses that we have available in our Let's Equip Academy uh, courses on biblical literacy, courses on how to build, launch, and grow a successful Christian YouTube channel and online ministry, uh, and a few other different courses as well. And uh, they can also uh, donate to our ministry there as well. Excellent. Now, you cover so many great things on your YouTube channel, and some of the things that you cover on the YouTube channel are actually in the book, Misled. Let's talk for a few minutes about the prosperity gospel. Um, how did this start, this prosperity gospel? Where did it come from? Yeah, well, you know, it, it seems to have gotten uh, a lot of traction, I would probably say, in the the 70s and 80s, I would say, uh, mm -hmm. where um, I would probably say Kenneth Hagin seems to be the um, the godfather, if you will, of the Word of Faith movement, uh, and it really just got its traction. And, and the reason why it is so popular is because it really preys upon uh, most I would probably say all, I can't imagine any human being who would not have these two desires, but our two greatest desires, which is to be healthy and wealthy. I mean, let's yeah. be honest, every single person would love to have a life without pain, without sickness, without suffering, um, and also to have more than enough money than we know what to do with. And so um, if you promise people that, hey, embedded in the gospel, uh, included in the finished work of Jesus Christ is this promise that you can have what you want, you can have the life that you want, uh, the problem is that they uh, erroneously tie faith to accessing that promise. So it's not just one of those things where, hey, this is going to be given to you guaranteed. No, you, in order to unlock this secret vault of blessings that are available for every Christian because it's promised and it's Jesus accomplished this through his finished work on the cross, you've got to exercise a certain requisite level of faith. And if you don't do that, then you're living beneath God's full potential for your life. And it's really your fault that you're not accessing these blessings because God wants to give them to you. It's just that you don't have enough faith, not you don't have enough faith to be an atheist. <laughs> you don't have enough faith to be a, to, to prosper. <laughs> so, so what are some of the passages they use, Alan? Are they taking stuff from the Old Testament uh, part of the old covenant and try and apply it in the new covenant. I mean, I, I think of say like Malachi three, where it says, you know, bring your tithe to the temple and your storehouses or your, your barns will overflow. Are those the kind of passages they use? Are they illegitimately taking promises from the old covenant and applying them in the new covenant? Yeah, well, I'll give you a couple, uh, you know, Deuteronomy chapter eight, it talks about, you know, God has given us the power to get wealth, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, yes. Uh, so <laughs> if you look at that passage, uh, it's very clear that God was talking specifically to the nation of Israel as they were entering into the promised land, and he's warning them, and he's saying, hey, as you get into this promised land, make sure that you don't forget the God who got you there. Make sure you don't forget that I'm taking you into a land with springs that you did not, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, wells that you did not dig, and houses you did not uh, build, and vineyards you did not plant. And just be reminded that God has given you the power to get wealth. Okay, that's good. But to take that verse and rip it out of context and make that a promise for every single believer throughout all time that God has given us the power to get wealth, 
is once again doing a disservice to the text. But one that's probably the, one of the most popular ones is Isaiah 53, 5, by his stripes we are healed. And man, if I've heard this one, Frank, I've heard it a million times. Um, people would just quote this because it sounds good. But if you look at the word healed, if you trace the word healed throughout the book of Isaiah, and really primarily throughout the majority of the Old Testament, specifically in the prophets, it's talking about a spiritual healing. I just encourage everyone out here to go get a concordance or use some sort of online tool and type in the word heal, healed, or healing, and look at how the word is used in the Old Testament, and you'll find ninety over 90 probably percent of the time, it's not talking about physical healing. It's talking about God spiritually healing the relationship that was broken with his people. So why is it that we take that one verse and say, oh, that must mean that I must be physically healed. That's an example of how verses are taken out of context. You know, we've said this on this program before, ladies and gentlemen, that there are no verses in the Bible. The, the, the verse, the chapter and verse divisions were put in about 500 years ago to help us navigate the text. But when Isaiah was writing Isaiah, he didn't say, here's chapter 53, verse one, okay? Or when Matthew's writing Matthew, he didn't say, here's chapter seven, verse one. And the problem is, is when we think there, there's a number in front of something that we can just take it out and make it say whatever we want. We can't do that. We've got to know the context. And this is what you point out in the book. And again, friends, the book that my friend Alan Parr has written is called Misled, Seven Lies That Distort the Gospel. He's pointing out you need to know the context. You need to know what's going on in order to discover what the word in this case healed means. I mean, does it mean you're physically healed? Is this even a reference to us? Or is this a reference to the suffering servant? That's what it is. Who turns out to be Jesus, who through his sacrifice has healed our divide with God. He's, he's, he's healed the fact that we're sinners and he came to provide healing because of the sin we've provided or that, that we've, we've committed so we can be reconciled to him. It has nothing to do with you being healed physically, yet people take that out of context, Alan. And that's what you point out here in the book, Misled. I want to ask you another question, too, because on a couple of occasions, and you cover this in the book, Jesus says, after he heals someone, your faith has saved you. That seems to be, uh, if you just take it, just take that verse without any context, your faith has saved you. It means, it does seem like faith is some sort of spiritual force, as, Kenny, as Kenneth Copeland would say. How do you respond to that? What's the proper yep. interpretation? Well, once again, we talked earlier about those three C's, right? Context, uh -huh. cross-references, right? So um, it would be great if, uh, it, this would be a lot easier if every single time Jesus healed someone, their healing was contingent upon their faith, right? It, it, it would be so much easier if every single time Jesus healed somebody, it was because they expressed faith in, not in him, but faith in mm. his ability to heal, right? And then they got healed. But the problem is we have so many examples in the scriptures where Jesus healed people, not on the basis of their faith, but on the basis of his desire to be good and want to heal them and him having compassion on them. I mean, you look at uh, you know the guy who was blind. He didn't even have he didn't have enough faith. He didn't he was blind. He couldn't even see, so he didn't even know who mm. was healing him. He just knows some guy named Jesus. Some some guy touched him, and he was able to see. He said, and then people kept asking him a lot of questions. He was like, "Look, I can't answer all your questions. The only thing I know is I used to be blind, and now I can see. I don't know anything else, right?" So 
you know, yes, there are some instances where people express faith and as a result, they got healed. But even then, scholars are a debate as to whether uh, their faith led to their salvation. And that's what Jesus is referring to. By his by your faith, you are made whole. You are saved. Is that referring to their salvation or is it referring to their physical uh, infirmity? So uh, there's just some deeper things I think we need to look at before we just, um, you know, paint a broad brush and say, oh, faith is necessary for your healing. And if you don't have enough faith, you will never get healed. Yeah, obviously the the people who were dead, like Lazarus, he couldn't have any faith, right? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so yeah, this faith. faith had nothing to do with whether or not he was healed. You know, uh, our uh, uh, my point. colleague, uh, Dr. John Ferrer here at crossexamine.org did a podcast, uh, I don't know, what, uh, three weeks or so ago where he went through some of the prosperity gospel uh, teachings because his wife, Hillary Morgan Ferrer, has chronic illness and a lot of people will say to her, well, it's your fault. You just don't have enough faith, right? And exactly. uh, he was pointing out, and I don't know if you've heard this before, um, you know, uh, in James 5, Alan, when uh, he says, uh, call the elders of the church to pray over anyone who's sick and anoint them with oil. And then it says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. And a lot of people maybe take that to seem, well, you know, if you bring the elders in, you anoint them with oil uh, and you pray, the guy's going to get well. But a lot of guys don't. Why not? Well, John's point here is this seems to be not salvation of uh, from sickness, but literal salvation, that the person is actually going to be saved from his sins. And it says the Lord will raise him up. It seems to be a reference to the resurrection. I don't know if you've heard that interpretation before, yeah. but it seems to comport with what he's saying here. Yeah, I have. And once again, guys, this is where we talk about the principle of cross-references, right? Mm -hmm. The Bible cannot contradict itself. We have to make sure we get that. So if James is giving us an all-out promise that, hey, just bring some people, the elders of the church, lay some, lay your hands on them and put some oil on them and pray, and if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. If James is promising us that, then that definitely contradicts other passages of Scripture and either, even other examples um, in the Bible. And it also contradicts, if I'm just being completely honest— it contradicts our personal experience. Mm -hmm. So are we saying that every single person who got sick and they uh, did not get healed, that that person did not have enough faith? Are we really willing to say that? A lot of people are saying that and it's wrong. You're being misled if you think that. That's why you need to get the brand new book called Misled by my guest today, Alan Parr. You also need to check out his YouTube channel, The Beat with Alan Parr, B-E-A-T. Great stuff up there. We're back in just two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. You're not going to hear this on NPR. I'm talking to my friend Alan Parr about his brand new book, Misled, Seven Lies That Distort the Gospel. I'm going to get right back to Alan in just a second. I want to point out, though, that this weekend I will be down in Columbus, Georgia at Cascade Hills Church, Saturday night service, Sunday morning services, and then Sunday night we'll have a two-hour session where I'll go through I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist and take your questions. And then every 
Wednesday night in uh, June, I'll be at Central Church of God here in Charlotte. We're also going through I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, 7 p.m. All the details are on our website. Check it out. Then on Sunday, June 25th, I'll be at Cross Life Community Church, Charlottesville, Virginia. And then I'll be speaking at the Think Well Conference right after that. All the details on our website. Check it out there. I know Alan, my guest Alan Parr, gets around quite a bit uh, speaking as well. Alan, uh, you got any events coming up where people can uh, see you speak? Yeah, I'm excited. Um, this weekend, as a matter of fact, uh, June 10th and 11th, I'll be here local at Cottonwood Creek uh, Church, which oh, is church. in, uh, yeah, a very, very big church. And yeah. uh, so uh, really, really excited to share uh, the Word of God uh, during the weekend services this weekend. That's that's Allen, Texas, ladies and gentlemen. Cottonwood yes. Creek Baptist Church, not far from Dallas. Go to allenparr.com to get more information. Are you speaking to Sunday morning services and all that? Sunday, yeah, two Sunday morning services and one Saturday evening service. Oh, beautiful. All right. Are you gonna, what are you going to be talking about? Are you going to be talking about misled or? Uh, we're talking more about spiritual maturity, the importance right. of making sure that we mature on our walk with God and we don't stay baby Christians. Oh, that's, if, if there's any talk that's important, it would be that because too often we're very shallow. And, uh, and one of the reasons that we misinterpret so many passages is because we are shallow. We, we haven't yes. really gotten to know what the scriptures are all about we think it's kind of like a fortune book that we can just open anywhere in there point our finger at a verse alan and go hey that's for me i'm claiming this verse right yeah well that's why a lot of people read the bible you know they do like uh -huh. biblical roulette you know, they don't have a plan for their bible study they just kind of just kind of flip it over and oh, i think i'll read uh zechariah chapter 4 verse 7 today and you know they, they don't they're not able to put it within a context and understand the bible and that's what that's why we do what we do that's why you and i have the courses that we have to help uh, eliminate biblical illiteracy as much as possible. Isn't it interesting that no one would ever consider reading another book like that? You know, <laughs> just take a book off your true. shelf, you know, like, uh, you know, the, the, the rise and fall of the Third Reich, a huge book, right? You wouldn't just pull one verse off or one sentence out of that book and try and understand what it meant without understanding the context around it. And yet we do that with the Bible. Yeah, it's, absolutely. it's really crazy. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. why your book misled seven lies that distort the gospel is uh, so critical. Let's talk a little bit about progressive Christianity, Alan. We talked before the break about uh, prosperity gospel. And uh, now let's talk about progressive Christianity. Where, where did this arise from? Yeah, well, you know, our good friend and colleague, uh, Lisa Childers has done some great work on uh, progressive Christianity. And, uh, so if you guys want to know a little bit more about that, she's got a great YouTube channel. She talks a lot about that as well as her book. Put a little plug in there for that, uh, another gospel. But essentially, uh, progressive Christianity emerged out of the emergent church movement from the early 2000s. And essentially, uh, what was happening was that uh, the emergent church was starting to question uh, some of the core doctrines and tenets of the Christian faith. And, um, you know, it was really highlighting and encouraging more questions and conversations as opposed to adopting these hard and fast doctrinal statements. Um, and so uh, progressive Christianity kind of kind of emerged out of that. And for those who may not be familiar with that, I personally don't believe that progressive Christianity is a valid branch of Christianity, although that is how they uh, uh, refer to themselves. But it's a very dangerous and very subtle movement because essentially what's happening is 
Uh, they're wanting to have their cake and eat it too. They're wanting to have Jesus, but Jesus on their own terms, right? And so, um, you know, they have uh, oftentimes, when I say they, I'm, I'm referring to the majority of people who consider themselves progressive Christians. Uh, they have a, a, a low view of scripture uh, and in the sense that, you know, there are certain passages in the Bible that they'll say, oh, that doesn't really apply anymore. Well, let me go back. Uh, progressive Christianity is is really the idea that because the culture has progressed on certain issues, particularly moral issues, let's just take uh, issues about LGBTQ or um, or abortion, things of this nature, then God has progressed on his view of these things. And therefore, Christians need to get in line and progress and kind of, you, you know, you, you need to you need to kind of keep up with the times because Hey, this stuff about, you know, men can't be with men and women can't be with men. That's kind of old school. That's that that's mm. that's we've progressed. The world has progressed, the culture has progressed. God has progressed on his view of it. He doesn't see anything wrong with it. So therefore Christians shouldn't see anything wrong with it either, and it's a very very dangerous thing. It's it's threatening the the nuclear family, the core of the nuclear family, uh and obviously uh the life of the unborn as well is at stake. So um there's a lot more I could talk about there, but um, the, you know, their view of Christ, their view of the finished work of Christ, um, their view of love and what they consider love to be. Love is acceptance. If you mm. love me, you'll accept me the way I am. If you don't mm. accept me, you don't love me. That's a very dangerous uh, ideology. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a pretty dangerous uh, movement. And the book uh, Misled goes into it. I'm going to pull out a couple of quotes from your book here, Alan. One of them, you say this, progressive Christianity allows the culture rather than the Bible to dictate what is moral and immoral. Uh, and we see that particularly with regard to the sexual issues. Uh, and isn't it interesting, Alan, that some of these people who have now come into progressive Christianity, they eventually wind up being atheists. That's what Elisa has said anyway. The progressive Christianity is just a, a gateway drug, so to speak, to atheism. And yet these people who now, then are atheists, they have no standard by which to say anything's right or wrong. You yeah. know, there are no rights. There's no gay rights or natural rights if there's no God. There's no right to anything. And yet they're... They're actually claiming the Bible is morally wrong when, in fact, they have no moral standard by which to judge anything morally wrong or morally right. The other thing I want to point out, I was shocked when I read this in your book. Again, friends, the book is called Misled the by Alan Parr, Seven Lies That Distort the Gospel. This uh, if I'm if I'm understanding this right, Alan, this is actually on the progressivechristianity.org uh, website and you put it in the book. Comment on this. Jesus was the perfect human who was also the perfect window to God. It's not as though there was a divine nature in him, but rather that his fully human nature was transparent to the God who inheres all reality. Comment on that. Yeah, well, that's, you know, once again, that's one of the uh, tendencies, if you will, of uh, progressive Christians is that their view of the person and work of Christ is very different than uh, historic Christianity, right? So we would see Jesus as uh, the divine son of God, the second person of the Trinity, 100% uh, man, 100% God. Uh, they like to focus more on Jesus' manhood and uh, his humanity and really see Jesus as more of a guide, more of a, a moral example that we need to mm. follow. And if you follow his moral example, 
then, you know, that's the goal of your life, right? No, Jesus was more than Gandhi. He was more than Oprah. He was more, well, I don't even say Oprah, but I'm, you know, because <laughs> I don't know if we want to follow Oprah's moral example, but you see what I'm saying? He was more than just a good teacher. He was more than just a upright moral man who showed us the way to God or, no, he was God. So anytime mm -hmm. you strip away Jesus' divinity and focus more on his humanity, you're stripping away who Jesus was and that's counter to what the church has held near and dear about Jesus for two millennia. And that's what the Bible actually says. I mean, we, we could spend an hour here going through the evidence that Jesus was God, the second person of the eternal Trinity. We don't have time to do that here. But the point here is, is that Jesus was not primarily our example. I mean, he was our, he was an example and a good exactly. example, obviously, the supreme example, but that wasn't his main role. His main role wasn't to be our example. His main role was to be our substitute. Yes. He's our substitute. He takes our punishment on himself. And then he not only forgives us, he gives us his righteousness. And if you're denying that, sorry, you're not a Christian. Stop calling yourself a Christian when you're denying the central teaching of Jesus, the central reason he came, the central identity of who he was. You're not progressive and you're not a Christian because you're regressing if you're if you're moving away from who Jesus really was. And you're not a Christian if you're disagreeing with Jesus and his essential claims. Yet that's what people do. They, 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 they actually try and say they're Christians when in fact they're really not. They're, they're on their way to atheism. I mean, look, Alan, why be part of a community that hardly believes anything the Bible says? Why not just stay home and watch MSNBC or CNN on Sunday morning? I mean, you're yeah, going to get the same message. Exactly. And, yeah. that's, and that's the thing that people need to understand, guys. We cannot cherry pick. We cannot ch tear pages whole portions of the Bible out because they don't fit our lifestyle. And that's mm -hmm. what's happening, right? Look, I'll be honest, guys. I was single till I was 40 years old. There were some verses in the Bible I wish I could tear out too, right? <laughs> the verses about, you know, abstinence and things like that. I wish I could have mm -hmm. tore those verses out, but I can't. If I say I'm a Christian, I need to align my life to the word of God and not say, well, because this doesn't fit with my life, I'm going to tear out this portion of the Bible. And that's what we see many progressives doing is they'll take any verse that has to do with LGBTQ or any of those verse. Oh, no, those verses don't apply anymore. Those were culture. Mm -hmm. Those are for a certain time. Or, or we need to reinterpret those. No, what you need to do is you need to do what the rest of us are doing. When you need to align your life with God's standards and you need to take up your cross and you need to uh, you need to follow Jesus and understand that that's going to be uncomfortable. We're all sacrificing. All of us have a sin nature that we have to crucify every single day. It's not easy for any of us. None of us get a free pass because we can make a claim that God created us this way. He created us all to be sinners, right? We were born in sin, shaped in iniquity. Nobody gets a free pass. You also write this in the chapter on progressive Christianity. Shortly before Roe versus Wade was overturned, progressivechristianity.org included this statement on abortion. Quote, the right to abortion is the mother of all rights, unquote. It goes on. How, how do people, they, these people are claiming to be Christians? That means Mary could have aborted Jesus and it would have been her right. I mean, yeah. think about this. 
This is absurd, ladies and gentlemen, and some people are being misled. That's why you need to get the book Misled, Seven Lies That Distort the Gospel by my friend and guest today, Alan Parr. The book comes out, by the way, on June 13th, so just a couple of days from now. You're going to want to pre-order it on Amazon. Get it. Alan also will have a book club that you can be a part of and actually interact with him on it. He'll tell you about that right after the break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, my guest, Alan Parr, back in two minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, summer is here, although here in Charlotte, North Carolina, it's been cold for summer. I don't know what's going on. So much for global warming. Anyway, um, what summer's a great time to take online courses. We have about 25 online courses on our website. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. We have courses from Sean McDowell, from Jay Warner Wallace, from Elisa Childers, from myself, from Gary Habermas, from Dan Wallace, from, from so many scholars out there that you can really learn a lot from. So you want to go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll also want to go to Alan's website, alanpar.com, because he has online courses as well. And summer's just a great time to do this. You know, you may be off from school. You may have a little extra time. This is a great time to actually do a little work to become more of a disciple. And Alan's new book, by the way, is going to help you do that as well. Again, the book is called Misled, Seven Lies That Distort the Gospel. Alan, you've got actually a book club that's starting on this book. Tell us about that and what people will get if they join it. Yeah, I'm really excited about the book club. It's going to give me an opportunity to have some candid conversations with people who are interested in reading the book. Uh, we put a lot of work into it. We've got a, a, um, a reading guide, discussion questions that you can download that will guide your reading. Uh, it's a four-week book club. starts June 22nd, and it goes through, I believe, July 19th, every Thursday, four Thursdays in a row at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. We'll meet on Zoom. We'll discuss the contents of the book. We'll have good conversation. So all you need to do in order to get uh, uh, to that book club is simply order the book, uh, or you can pre-order it at misledbook.com, and then uh, we'll put a link below uh, where people can join the book club as well, and uh, they'll get an email with some information on uh, how to join and how to get connected. Misledbook.com. Check it out. Misled. Don't be misled now. Misledbook.com. Check it out. You ought to be a part of that. It starts June 22nd. You'll be on Zoom with Alan himself. You can ask questions, interact with other people. It's going to be a great way to, to internalize what's in a book. I don't know about you, Alan, but when I read a book, what I do is I, I highlight the areas I definitely want to remember. I may put a note in the margin or something. Then when I want to review the book, I just go back and read the highlights. That's how I do it. I don't know. Uh, but me, friends, you ought to do the same thing. Don't just read a book and then let it go in one ear and out the other. Highlight it, meditate on it, think about it, write it down, try and get that concept in your head. Because you can only learn two ways. You can learn from your own experience or somebody else's, and you don't have enough time to learn from your own experience. In fact, your own experience may have misled you into believing some of the things that this book talks about, and you don't want to be misled. The biggest problem about being deceived is you don't know you're being deceived. So, Alan, let's talk about another chapter in the book, and that has to do with prophecy. Uh, there's a lot of people today that consider themselves prophets. Are they? What does it mean? What is a prophet? Well, that's the interesting thing is that, you know, uh, back when, uh, you know, in the 80s and 70s and 
you know, we knew who the prophets were, right? You knew they, okay, prophet so-and-so or prophet of so-and-so is coming to my church and they're going to give a prophetic word. And so you could identify people who claim to be prophets. Nowadays, with the advent of social media, everybody's a prophet, right? Even people who don't claim the title of prophet, they're acting as if they are a prophet because they're going on and they're doing a live prophetic word on Instagram or they're using words that I talk about in the book, God told me, that's the thing now, well, God told me in a dream, God told me this, God told me that. Even though they don't have the title of prophet, they are acting as a prophet and they are speaking on behalf of God. And I wanna really encourage people to make sure that they are very, 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 very careful. I can't say very too, enough times <laughs> before they use the words God told me because God takes it very seriously whenever we speak on his behalf. So much so in the Old Testament, he said, hey, if a prophet speaks on my name and that prophecy does not come to pass, that prophet is a false prophet. You should not be afraid of him and that prophet will be stoned to death. Now, I understand that today, um, that same uh, penalty is not in being enforced, which is uh, which is good. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't take it as seriously uh, as He did before. And uh, you know, one thing about prophets, uh, you know, uh, Frank, is people don't realize this, but prophets in the Old Testament were hated. Uh, they were they they were people that didn't you know people were not respecting the prophets. They did not like want to Jeremiah. see Jeremiah come. Yeah they, yeah, they were they were beaten. They were imprisoned. Uh, they right. were persecuted. Into cisterns. <laughs> yeah, and it's because not they were coming. <laughs> yeah, they were coming with a message that people didn't want to hear. Right? Mm -hmm. Who wants to hear repent and turn from your sins? Nobody wants to hear that. But nowadays, prophets, you know, I would say most of them, most of their messages centered around telling th people things that they do want to hear, and so. When you look at how prophets are acting today and you compare it with the role of prophets in the Old Testament, particularly in the Bible, it's a very, very different thing. Yeah, well, you write in the book, Misled, the spiritual condition of the people, speaking of true prophets, was their main focus, not their physical or material condition. So unpack that for us. What is it? First of all, if there are modern day prophets, are they supposed to be giving us new revelation or reminding us of the old revelation? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And people debate that all the time. I am of the position that um, a someone who acts as a New Testament prophet is not to be giving any new revelation. I believe in sola scriptura. I believe that um, the scriptures that we have are inerrant. They're infallible. They're sufficient. Uh, there's no further need for any new revelation, right? But with that being said, um, could God use someone to exhort or encourage me in an area of my life that is consistent with the scriptures? Yeah. I mean, if someone sees me disrespecting my wife and we're out to dinner, could God use somebody to come and say, hey, Alan, God put it on my heart or God told me to come to you and share with you that you were mean to your wife and you need to go apologize? At that mm. point, I can believe that, okay, this person probably did hear from God on that because what they're telling me is consistent with how I should be treating my wife, right? Mm. But, you know, and, and let me just also say this. I'm not suggesting that it's impossible for God to use someone to speak a word to someone else's life that maybe is not in the Bible. I'm just saying that I don't believe there's that God is giving prophets 
an all-out message for the entire body of Christ to follow that because this prophet said it, now this is new revelation that's on par with the scriptures. Uh, I think that's pretty dangerous when we when we start to look at that. Yeah, there's a there's a difference uh, between reminding people what's already in the scriptures and giving people new revelation. And I think there's also a difference between what is normative and what God might do on special occasions. And I think people think that it's normative for God to give them little hints or have people come into their lives and give them, you got to marry this person and not this person. In fact, you even tell of a story of a pastor who told, wait, tell the story about a pastor who told this woman to marry some guy. Go ahead. Tell, tell yeah, us that. Yeah. I mean, this person is very near and dear to me. I won't mention her name, but um, she was in a relationship with a guy. She got pregnant by a guy and he was abusive. He was not showing any signs of being a godly husband. And she was really wrestling with, should I marry this guy because I'm already pregnant by him? And, you know, should, would it be better for me to get married to him so we could have some semblance of what would look like a family, mommy, daddy being married and having our uh, a child? Or should I raise this child up and, and as best I can, but all the signs are pointing that I shouldn't marry this guy? Well, the pastor of their church uh, essentially encouraged her and said God told him in a dream that, this was his her husband and that she should marry him. And so because she saw him as her spiritual covering, her spiritual father, she didn't question it. She assumed he was hearing from God. She went ahead and married him, and the marriage ended up being a complete and total disaster, as we all saw uh, from, you know, on the outside looking in while they were dating. And uh, they ended up being a getting a divorce, and it sent her life down a path that she probably would have preferred it not go. So we just need to use caution when people say, hey, I'm a prophet I heard from God. Say, okay, that's nice, but pray and ask God to confirm it to you. <laughs> yeah, give us give us one insight on how to do that, Alan. We got about a minute to go before we got to start wrapping things up. I, how, do, how, how do you help people be discerning when it comes to what other people say? God told me this, God told me that. What do you do? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things we can do is we can first and foremost look and say, okay, does this sound like it's consistent with the scriptures? Does it sound mm -hmm. like it's consistent with God, the character of God, the nature of God, right? The next thing we can do is we can really uh, seek godly wisdom and counsel. The Bible says, you know, um, uh, there's safety in a multitude of counselors, there's safety. So, uh, you know, don't just assume something someone said is uh, is truth. Uh, take it to other trusted people uh, who are, uh, you know, skilled in the word of God and say, Hey, this is what somebody said to me. Uh, how does that sound to you? Uh, mm -hmm. and then finally, like I said, pray and ask God to truly confirm to you what you believe another prophet said to you. Um, and, uh, if you do those types of things and you don't make quick decisions based on what someone else said, um, normally God will guide you in the direction you need to go. The will of God is never contrary to the word of God, ladies and gentlemen. If somebody's telling you something that's contrary to the word of God, it's not from God. It might be from the other side. Uh, and uh, if they're 
revealing something to you that is in addition to the Word of God. In other words, it, it doesn't agree or disagree with the Word of God. You need to be very cautious. What the Bible gives us, uh, or God gives us the Bible so we can make good decisions. He gives us a book of Proverbs so we can do that. If God was going to tell us what to do every day and every decision we made, you wouldn't even need the book of Proverbs. You wouldn't even need much of the wisdom literature. So we have to be very astute with the Word of God. We have to know it. We have to discern it. If we're going to save ourselves from being misled, and you can also get the brand new book by Alan, Misled, Seven Lies That Distort the Gospel. Alan, give people the website again, particularly the book website, so people can be a part of this. Yes, misledbook.com. If you go there uh, and you show proof of purchase, you can get a free biblical literacy course from our website. We're giving it to you. All you have to do is purchase the book and fill out a form on misledbook.com and uh, you'll get access to one of our uh, premium uh, Bible study methods courses. Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to spend a few more minutes with Alan. If you want to hear what Alan has to say, particularly how he's got this YouTube channel going, you need to join the Cross-Examine community. Go to crossexamine.org, click on community, become a part of it, and I will see you there. All right, friends, we'll see you here next week. Lord willing, thanks so much. And don't forget, go to alanpard.com for much more. See you next week. God bless.